Good evening and welcome to the Locked On Winnipeg Jets podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. I'm your host, Harrison Lee, an avid Winnipeg Jets fan and an online blogger. You can follow me on Twitter at HLLivingLoco and follow our podcast Twitter at LO underscore Winnipeg Jets. Today's episode is brought to you by the lovely folks at rockauto.com. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need, visit rockauto.com. On today's episode, we are going to be covering some brief Jets news, as well as talking about some of the supposed uh, NHL lineups coming into the series against the Calgary Flames, which I believe will start in just a couple of weeks here. But before we talk about the return of the NHL and some of the funny stuff that has happened in between, I thought I would cover some serious matter first. And this is going to be a little bit outside of hockey, but also involve something that somebody else did comment on recently. And of course, I am referring to the Washington professional football team's uh, well, not only their name change, but recently the allegations against Dan Snyder's team as it pertains to sexual assault and uh, harassment. Obviously, I think most people know that the Washington, D.C. pro football team has something of a sordid reputation, especially amongst a lot of fans and just really outside observers in general. And first off, I think we can all acknowledge that the name of the team itself is kind of racist. And that would be putting it lightly. I have seen an article recently about an indigenous member who was saying that it wasn't that big of a deal, but I think most of the community that I've seen from other tribes has indicated the team name to be both offensive and, of course, derogatory. So I'm going to side with the majority here. Quite honestly, I thought that that was going to be the main uh, reason that this team was noteworthy again, but apparently that was very much mistaken. A couple of days ago, we got a bunch of rumors that something about Dan Snyder was going to come out from the Washington Post and it was going to be the kind of news that gets a team sold from um, one one owner to another, and basically that would have uh, trashed Dan Snyder's legacy, which, to be honest, I don't really know how it gets much worse, because it's not like this guy is viewed with particularly sterling lenses to begin with. The Dan Snyder Foundation and the the group that runs it, as well as Snyder himself, is just not, not really that great of a group of people, it sounds like, and the, the allegations that have been made against a lot of the team staff, as well as some of the coaching staffs, and upper management, they're pretty bad. If you want to take a look at what uh, a lot of the women employees had to say, especially uh, about some of the guys who have now been fired because of these allegations and investigations, I recommend that you check out the Post's article. I'm not going to go into it in too much detail, but suffice it to say, it definitely crossed every single line known to man, especially in regards to workplace harassment, uh, sexual harassment, uh, basically any sort of demeaning behavior that you could imagine that creates a hostile work environment a lot of these employees were subject to on a a daily basis. This coming from a team that, you know, already had something of a racist caricature as its main logo and branding, and now has also actually been caught, I think they were essentially renting out um, the cheerleader squad for, I guess, season ticket holders or something, in what a lot of people said was basically some sort of metaphorical prostitution, which, you know, obviously pretty, pretty bad. You know, these women were not really willing or or consenting, but they were still forced to just to keep their jobs. And a lot of them, a lot of the women that have now come out with the allegations, especially in this Washington Post article, have even had to go uh, through this whole process anonymously because, A, they signed NDAs um, prohibiting them from really speaking about this, and B, you know, they face a lot of retaliation from the public. While sports fandom can be great and sports in general are wonderful, it's also very easy to see the dark side of sports fans, especially those that will target and harass people who have, in some way, they feel besmirched their favorite sports team or sports idols' names. That kind of hero worship is how you get uh, teams like the Washington Pro Football Team able to survive this long without these scandals breaking out, because 
they're protected by not only lawyers and money, but fan bases that essentially just look the other way and keep spending money. This is obviously something that needs to happen as a cultural change, and it also kind of brought me to a different thing that I noticed. Uh, I saw earlier today that Jeremy Roenick made a comment about um, his firing being discriminatory in a way, which I thought is such an absurd take to have because he said that he would love to have a threesome with one of his, you know, one of his colleagues. And that, you know, if I said something like that in any job that I've had before and it was recorded or on the record somewhere, I would have been fired pretty much immediately. You know, and these people tend to think that they don't have rules and laws that apply to them the same as any other, you know, anyone who is bound by a contractual obligation to maintain a certain decorum and standard. Obviously, his comments, even if he had kept them to themselves, you know, would have been pretty derogatory and disgusting. But the fact that he also said it on a podcast outside of the organization is pretty bad. For him to talk about sexual harassment as somehow, you know, him being the victim here in the situation where he was the one who said these words in the first place and created that hostile environment and is now claiming to be the victim of discriminatory hiring and work practices is just absurd. There is no workplace out there where there aren't rules against these kinds of comments or behaviors. And, you know, plenty of places, even if they don't always enforce them properly, still at least have it written in your your contract. You know, I see plenty of people going through sexual harassment trainings all the time. And for, you know, Ronick to think that those rules do not apply to him and that he is somehow above that is just absolutely ridiculous. And I don't really expect anything better from him because you know what he did? He ended up saying that his political views on Trump were the reason why he got fired. What I find really funny about that is considering how many, uh, you know, right wing figures we have in hockey all the time, you know, talking about their political beliefs and things and not facing any real consequences for it. I would be shocked if that was ever a part of why Ronick was fired. No, he got fired because he said something very derogatory about a colleague on a recorded podcast. You see this behavior a lot from people who get fired from positions of power. And, you know, Don Cherry was somebody who made uh, a racist remark and ended up getting removed. And people were like, oh, you know, they're just trying to cancel him. It's like, well, maybe if you aren't going to say something very mean-spirited, especially about minorities or communities that are typically, uh, in in many ways, historically and in contemporary times, oppressed, then you're just going to be removed because society has developed standards that are no longer aligning with your personal views, and sorry, you're just going to have to deal with it. It's not any different at any other point in, you know, human history. We've had plenty of situations where people said something unacceptable, and they got removed from office, or they committed some felony act, and they were removed as well. It is certainly easier for people to face consequences now because of stuff like social media and the way that the, the you know, video, print, and digital media sources now work. And there is, of course, a risk that there are certain times where there are false reports and accusations made, but those times seem to be very few and far between. It takes a lot of courage and strength for people to come up and speak about allegations of abuse, assault, and all of the things that they have suffered through. And, you know, no one wants to go through this process, but sometimes they feel that they have to because people have to know the truth. Otherwise, the perpetrators will continue to get away with it. And for Ronick to play the victim here, despite the fact that he was the one who made the derogatory comment, is just, you know, it's really disappointing, and I'm not shocked. We need to do better, folks. Bottom line, we need to do better. Before we go too much deeper, I thought it would be prudent to say a huge thanks to our wonderful sponsors at rockauto.com. If you are looking for brand new car parts and you're not really sure where to start, rockauto.com has your back. The fine folks at rockauto.com have been in the automotive industry business for over 20 years. 
with an easy-to-use, intuitive website that lets you sort by car type, year, make, model, and price range for the parts you want to pay, finding exactly what you need from engine control modules to new floor mats has never been easier. Better yet, you might save 10, 20, 30, 40, even 50% off of retail brick-and-mortar auto parts stores. Why go out during quarantine when you can stay right at home and place the order online for exactly what you need while saving money? Head on over to rockauto.com, and if you place an order, be sure to write Locked On in the How Did We Do box so they know we sent you. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need. Visit rockauto.com. Back on the uh, hockey train, so to speak, we are continuing on with some Jets updates. The most important one being that Connor Hellebuck has been selected as a finalist for the Vezina Trophy. And this, of course, is the infamous award for the best goalie in the NHL. Now, if you have ever followed me on Twitter, you probably know that I tend not to really agree with trophy voting in the NHL because a lot of the awards tend to be given to guys who I honestly don't think deserve it as much as some of the other candidates. Not that they don't work really hard and do really well at their job, but oftentimes the voting criteria seems to look at only a couple of facets and qualities, and the evaluation ends up being really flawed. Goaltending is one of those positions that people don't really understand that well, and like I am somebody who's kind of in that boat of knowing enough about it, but not being intimately involved with it. That said, there are quite a few folks doing statistical analysis and deeper dives into goaltending technique and outcomes, and Connor Hellebuck this season has shown really well, and that owes a lot to the fact that he was playing behind one of the absolute worst defenses in the league, and put up incredibly strong results despite the fact that he was facing an overwhelming number of shots on a pretty regular basis. Hellebuck was so good, in fact, that he actually has a shout as the league's most valuable player and should be, in my opinion, a finalist for the Hart Trophy. Realistically speaking, the Jets have basically been a lottery team for almost the entire season, so the fact that they are actually in in shouting distance of this play-in round and have a a chance to go past that play-in round into a deeper run really is is all due to Hellebuck being absolutely outstanding for almost the entire season. The other trophy finalists are interesting in the sense that uh, we have uh, Tuka Rask of the Boston Bruins. Now, I think Rask is actually a pretty deserving candidate, and I think that Rask makes a lot of sense because despite the fact that he was playing behind a very good defense, Rask was putting up amazing numbers anyways, so it wasn't like he was just benefiting from the defense and his actual contributions were mediocre. Rask was putting in the work and putting in really good results. Anyone that has tracked Tuka Rosk over his entire career knows more or less that Tuka is a legitimately amazing goaltender and one of the best in the league on a pretty consistent basis. Even when he's not always top five or so, he's still very decent and, and more than enough to support that Bruins squad, uh, a squad that continues to be very deep and get a lot of production across all four lines. That said, Rosk again had a really dominant season this year, so I feel like him coming in at the runner-up number two spot is more than fair. The third finalist, though, is Andre Vasilevsky of the Tampa Bay Lightning, and this selection I really don't agree with. I think that Vasilevsky is sort of mediocre given what, first off, the defense in front of him often does, and secondly, he just, he gets a lot of wins, which I think tends to influence a lot of the Vezina Trophy voting, but those wins tend to mask, I think, in my opinion, just okay performances. I don't think that he's been particularly outstanding, and certainly he's not the one who is driving a lot of that team's success on the back end. You know, Hellebuck, on a pretty consistent basis, has been Winnipeg's most important player and clearly one of the best goalies in the league. Vasilevsky can be pretty good at times, but overall I don't think that he is in the top three. 
There was an interesting article from Paul Campbell of In Goal Magazine, and if you've never seen Paul's work, he does really good in-depth goalie analysis, and I, I think that he's one of the smartest people out there on goaltending uh, and in hockey in general. So if you want to saw him a follow, he is at Paul on Twitter.com. I definitely recommend you go check him out because his work is great, and he actually had a very compelling argument for why Jacob Markstrom deserved the trophy, perhaps in a, a split between him and Hellebuck. He thought that the divide between first and second, which for him his second place vote was going to be for Markstrom, is actually closer than the three finalists that are, are currently in the slots that they are. When you take a look at the heat maps for where Winnipeg often surrendered scoring opportunities, you can kind of see Paul Maurice's philosophy in pretty stark relief. A lot of the chances come centrally, uh, in that front slot area, and from the points. Now, when you look at Vancouver's heat map of scoring chances against their opportunities are really concentrated around the net area, but they're very diffused across a much larger area, and you can tend to see that the width of the area from where players are taking shots from is pretty wide. So what this often means is that uh, Markstrom probably had to do a lot of lateral movements and read and react a lot more frequently with more reflexive actions and a lot of post-to-post -post movement, which for goaltending can be really, really complicated and really difficult to pull off that he was able to keep the Canucks within a playoff spot and really performing, uh, at least record-wise, well above what you would probably expect from that squad says a lot about the fact that Markstrom had a fairly strong season, and now that he is entering free agency, I think that his contract is going to be very difficult for the Canucks to pin down. It's kind of disappointing that he didn't even get a shout, because even as somebody who is, relatively speaking, a neophyte as far as goaltending is concerned, even I could tell that Markstrom was putting in pretty insane performances. I got to watch a few of his games this season, and I felt like his glove reads, his reactions, and just his general positioning and stuff were fantastic. Especially because Vancouver, in the defensive zone, I thought was a little more passive than a lot of other teams, and so that, that gives you a, a lot of opportunities to go for lateral movements, and cross-seam passes that often give goalies tons of fits. This did not seem to bother Markstrom a whole lot, and I think that his performance this year, especially relative to what you would expect, was very good, and certainly worthy of a top three Vezina Trophy nomination. Hellebuck, of course, is still my pick by the sheer volume of goals that he saved and the amount of work they just had to do, but Markstrom has a pretty decent argument as a very close second. Heading into the upcoming postseason picture, which admittedly is still a bit murky as far as I'm concerned, Winnipeg has a number of lineup choices to make, and there have been some early training camp developments that I think have put people maybe in a little bit of a more dour straits. I mean, first off, we've got Cody Eakin as our second-line center, which, you know, Eakin at this stage of his career is probably not really suited for such a high role. He's been playing with Ehlers and Line, which I think he did at another point earlier this year, and you know, that's kind of a line that was not as bad as you might expect, but certainly um, Eakin was not really the kind of play-driving center that I would probably look to put between, you know, two offensive young guns with a lot of firepower like that. Truth be told, the Jets also just don't have many center options to begin with, and like, Andrew Kopp is pretty good, I think, and, and I think that he can do enough in that role. I just don't think that either he nor Aiken are going to be the kind of players that you really need in that role. And I, I like Cop a lot, and I think that he actually is supremely underappreciated. And actually, as a second-line center, I feel like he did a lot of dirty work that went underappreciated. It's just that in an ideal world, he's like your third-line matchup center and can maybe serve as more of like a third-second line rather than your primary second line. So, 
you know, I, I understand what Maurice is probably thinking here. Aiken at one point played top six for the Vegas Golden Knights. He's always a crafty veteran at this stage of his career, but unfortunately his impact on the ice, especially in the offensive zone, just isn't quite as good as it used to be. He does have a, a, a good shot, and I think that that is probably the primary reason that he has been placed with Ehlers and Line A, but I'm just not really in love with that particular line unit. And I have to I have to say that the first line of what will probably be Connor, Shifley, and Wheeler is, is going to be all right. I think that there are, of course, going to be some defensive issues because uh, Connor is still not really emphasizing back-checking as part of his game, and I think in his defensive zone coverages, he tends not to engage a whole lot, so uh, Wheeler, of course, has had to become more of a domineering uh, two-way center and, and defensive winger at times, which, you know, I, I'm not totally against. I just feel like ultimately his attacking prowess has definitely diminished over the years, and we're definitely seeing uh, Wheeler kind of at his, his at a slower point. Um, so Shifley's going to have to do double duty, I think, and I hope that he's fully healthy and stuff because throughout the season, he's been a little bit up and down, which, you know, I, I like Shifley a lot, but there were definitely times during the season where I was concerned about his performance, and I, I wasn't sure if it was health-related or something else. You know, it's tough playing in this league day in and day out, but Shifley is one of those guys who constantly seems to love playing hockey, so when his body language is poor and he's missing defensive assignments and just doesn't really look as engaged as he usually does, it's not a great sign heading into the postseason. I'm hoping that all of the guys who have taken time off are, are coming back refreshed and looking forward to things and, you know, more than anything else, staying healthy because ultimately that's the most important thing. These guys uh, staying healthy, you know, keeping their families safe, keeping them th themselves safe, I think that that is uh, always going to take precedence for me over any of these sporting aspects. Um, once this playoff resumes, I guess, we'll see how the Jets handle things. I think that their bottom six is going to look a little different. Janssen Hargens appears to be one of the odd men out, which is, for me, it's not super ideal. I think that Harkins would definitely be better than Cody Eakin, and he might provide a little more two-way versatility over somebody like Jack Roslovic. I think Roslovic is a good attacking winger, but if you want like a more defensive style uh, with two-way transition play, then that's kind of what like, Harkins specializes in. That said, I don't know that it's going to be like a game-breaking omission. I just feel like Harkins might have more of a, a tactile impact, especially because I think the opening weeks of this whole tournament are going to be really chaotic. I could easily see the Jets getting swept as I could see them sweeping somebody because it's just going to be super unpredictable. Things are going to be totally crazy. These guys haven't played in months. And so trying to figure out exactly what's going to happen over the next couple of weeks is, is just anyone's guess, really. And I feel like the Jets are going to want to do as much as humanly possible to mitigate randomness. But again, in a sport that is often driven entirely by fortunes, uh, married to skill, risk mitigation is kind of a foreign concept. And that's fine. So, I, you know, it's frustrating for me because I feel like Harkins does deserve that spot. But, you know, I'm, I'm also not going to protest too much. I mean, at this point, the team is what it is. They're going to ride with what they've got. And they've been doing that for months now. And they're going to have to rely on Hellebuck being dominant again. As far as the defensive unit is concerned, I mean, uh, Morrissey and, I guess, um, DeMello on the top pairing is fine. Hopefully Morrissey, again, is healthy. That would be a game-changer. Um, Pionk and Kulikov, I think, would be fine as your second pairing. Ideally, that's, like, a really good third pairing, but, of course, the Jets don't live in an ideal world. Their third pairing, it looks like, is Bolu and Pullman, which I, I think Pullman will be fine in that third pairing role. I'm not 100% sure about Nate. 
he's had a tough season and uh you know the off the ice stuff that has happened um you know with his dog and, and just the general general upheaval with also dealing with some injuries it'll be curious to see how he handles uh, his return to the lineup i think that there was a lot going on in his life uh, before hockey took a break so hopefully he's had time to rest uh, maybe recuperate and and sort of get his mental health in check too because i think that that probably wasn't feeling 100 percent, especially with everything that was going on it can be easy to forget that these guys are human beings at the end of the day and not just hockey automatons and obviously all of that stress can make somebody crack and and really struggle with stuff and if you're feeling that same kind of pressure especially during quarantine never hesitate to reach out and talk to somebody because right now i think more than anything making sure that we're all connected and, and staying you know kind of sane and and healthy is really important thanks so much guys for listening i hope you enjoyed tonight's episode uh, before you log off, be sure to check out our Locked On NHL National Podcast with Sarah Avampado. Thanks so much, have a great night, and go Jets go!